Welcome to the Antimicrobial Stewardship Podcast. This podcast has been made possible by Sovereign Medical Consulting and Sovereign Stewardship Services, a division of Sovereign Medical Consulting. I am your host, and my name is Dr. Edward Grace. I'm an infectious disease pharmacist and chief consultant for Sovereign Consulting Services. I'm also an associate professor of pharmacy practice, infectious diseases, and medical biomedical sciences. Welcome to our first session of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Podcast. This podcast will focus on newly published studies and articles in highly viewed infectious diseases, medical and pharmacy journals. Our emphasis is on measures and methods to control antimicrobial use, decrease antimicrobial resistance, and hopefully as a result, also decrease the care, the cost of care. Each month we will review several articles from various journals and we will have co-hosts who are infectious diseases physicians, pharmacists, microbiologists, and infection control specialists. In addition, we will often have authors of the studies we are discussing to provide us with their views and insights into the studies and their results. Again, welcome to the first session. And today we'll talk about three studies that have been published in this month, so in August 2018. And again, as your host, I will be going through all the three studies and giving you a brief synopsis of each study and its significance in clinical practice. Each of these podcasts should last anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes. So today we will look at three studies. The first study, which is titled Comparing Appropriateness of Antibiotics for Nursing Home Residents by Setting of Prescription Initiation, a cross-sectional analysis. This study is published by Dr. Michael Puglia as the chief officer. In addition, this article has been published in the Journal for Antimicrobial Resistance and Infection Control in the August publication. In this study, the authors um, conducted a retrospective cross-sectional multi-center study that included five nursing homes in southern Wisconsin between January 2013 and September 2014. And all nursing home residents um, that had antibiotics or antibiotics prescribed were recorded and reviewed. And the main focus was looking at prescriptions for antibiotics to treat urinary tract infections, low respiratory tract infections, skin and soft tissue infections, and urinary tract infections, these being the three of the four most common type of infections encountered in long-term care facilities. The one that's not included is Clostridium difficile um, infections. So in this study, they're able to include um, 735 antibiotic starts, of which 87% were started within a nursing home um, setting. Keep in mind, um, certain patients or prescriptions were excluded, and these included prescriptions that were uh, prescribed at a time of discharge from a hospital when a resident is returning back to a, a nursing home or long-term care facility. And so in this data, the, really the goal of the, of the study was to characterize initiation of antibiotic therapy for nursing home residents by setting. And the settings here are nursing home initiated, emergency department initiated, and also outpatient clinic initiated um, antimicrobials or antibiotics. 
infection type, and again, the ones they focused on were urinary tract infection, lower respiratory tract infections, and skin and soft tissue infections, and antibiotic class. And they wanted to compare related patterns and appropriateness of these um, antibiotics being prescribed for the different indications and in the different settings. So in this study, um, as I mentioned, um, certain patients were excluded, and these were patients um, really that were um, prescribed antibiotics or antimicrobials at the time of discharge from a, a acute care hospital. So when we look at the data results of this study, um, which I find very interesting, um, we find that the, um, not surprisingly, we're focusing on patients from nursing homes and long-term care facilities, that the average age was around 85 years old. And um, that urinary tract infections was the most commonly treated type of infection. This accounted for half of the infections that were um, captured included in this analysis, um, followed by lower respiratory tract infections. In addition, um, they looked at the antibiotic appropriateness, or were the antibiotics appropriate for the given indication. And it turned out that 49% of the antibiotic prescriptions were deemed inappropriate. And this is across all three settings, long-term care facilities, emergency departments, and outpatient clinics. Um, this included um, just about 58% inappropriate prescriptions for urinary tract infections, which was the most common inappropriate um, treated indication, followed by 51% for low respiratory tract infections and 27% for skin and soft tissue infections. And so looking at the inappropriate antibiotics um, prescribed instead of by indication, by setting, it turned out that nursing homes and emergency departments really had the same percentage of inappropriate prescriptions for antibiotics. And this was right at 47%. Um, little or quite a bit worse than them was the outpatient clinics where 64%, so almost so two-thirds of the prescriptions were inappropriate. However, um, this is something that's not too surprising given that um, emergency departments now, some of them do have antimicrobial stewardship programs in addition to nursing homes and long-term care facilities where outpatient clinics do not have antimicrobial stewardship programs. And so when we look at um, really the, um, what I consider the worst of the worst, so inappropriate antibiotic prescriptions um, based on the settings for urinary tract infections, emergency departments um, and outpatient clinics really were um, the worst. They, um, emergency departments had 73% inappropriate prescriptions for urinary tract infections, while outpatient clinics ha had almost 81% inappropriate um, prescriptions for urinary tract infections. Nursing homes did a little better. 56% um, of the prescriptions were inappropriate. When we look at skin and soft tissue, um, nursing home, about 22%, 21 to 22% were inappropriate. Emergency department, 25% and outpatient clinics was at 54%. Um, again, better, um, looks like a little more appropriate prescriptions for skin and soft tissue infections than urinary tract, but still not very good. Fluoroquinolones were the most um, commonly prescribed antibiotics for urinary tract infections. This accounted for a third of the prescriptions um, and also for respiratory tract and also accounted for a third of the prescriptions. For skin and soft tissue, cephalosporins were prescribed most often and um, accounted for just about 62% of the prescriptions. So when they did a risk analysis for what's the risk of a, of a resident or patient to receive an inappropriate antibiotic um, for an infection, 
they came to some very interesting conclusions. And it's that um, prescription for antibiotic initiated in the outpatient clinic had a three times increased odds of inappropriate um, prescribing or use compared to antibiotics as pro prescribed within a nursing home. And that's with controlling for certain variables. And they also found that when trying to treat a respiratory infect, infection, that patients were at three and a half times the risk of receiving inappropriate prescriptions um, for lower respiratory tract infections and four and a half times more likely to receive inappropriate prescriptions for urinary tract infections when being treated on an outpatient setting compared to nursing. So this study, um, I think, really brings um, some old data back to light, which is the frequency of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. Previous studies have shown that anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of prescriptions prescribed within um, for antibiotics within long-term care facilities are inappropriate. But this study also sheds light on the inappropriateness of antibiotic prescribing in the outpatient setting, including outpatient clinics. This would include specialist visits, primary care physicians, and also an emergency department. And perhaps these are areas where increased antimicrobial stewardship is needed. This study, um, again, was published in August in Antimicrobial Resistance and Infection Control and um, is available online ahead of print. The second study we're going to talk about um, is a study that's been published in the Clinical Infectious Disease Journal. This is the Journal of Infectious Society of America. And it's titled, Impact of Implementing Antibiotics Stewardship Programs in 15 Small Hospitals, a Cluster Randomized Intervention. And the chief author is um, Dr. Edward Steinheim. This study, um, again, is published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in the August um, edition. This study um, really wanted to look at the impact of antimicrobial stewardship interventions in acute care hospitals with differing levels of interventions by the antimicrobial stewardship team or program. So the objective of this um, it was a cluster randomized intervention was to really look at the effectiveness of implementing antimicrobial stewardship programs in 15 small hospitals. Um, so each hospital of the 15 was randomized to one of three what we'll call tiers of therapy for antibiotic stewardship. Tier one was the antimicrobial stewardship really with the least interventions, and we'll talk about that. Two had more intervention, and third was the most robust. And so when looking at these different um, tiers, we find that program one, or what the authors call program one, or you can think of it as tier one, this really included um, really basic antimicrobial stewardship interventions which included um, education, some antimicrobial stewardship tools. They included an ID hotline or infectious disease hotline where providers or um, clinicians can call this hotline that's staffed by infectious disease physicians and pharmacists to ask questions. And also, um, they had access to antibiotic utilization reports. Program 2 or Tier 2 really had a more robust um, antimicrobial stewardship involvement. And this um, included education that was more didactic, they include reference material. They did in real-time perspective audit and feedback and um, antibiotic de-escalation when needed, and also um, ensuring that certain 
organisms that are likely in certain infections, including anaerobic or resistant organisms, are covered for when empiric therapy is initiated. This um, program, this level two, had limited um, perspective audio and feedback compared to the tier three, which the tier three really looked at every aspect of um, antimicrobials being prescribed as far as dose, duration, was, it, was the antimicrobials being prescribed appropriate for that given organism, um, again, more robust education, and they included two different interventions that were not included in the tier two. And this is um, antibiotic restrictions, which was controlled by infectious disease group, and also in, um, infectious disease review of designated cultures. And these are cultures from patients' cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF, it were required to be reviewed by infectious disease specialists who made recommendations for the treatment of these infections, including meningitis and encephalitis. So when we look at the results of this study, um, to a certain degree, um, as we would expect, we're going to find that Tier 3 or Program 3 had the biggest impact, Tier 2 had a little less, and then Tier 1 had the least. So total antibiotic use declined 11% from baseline during the intervention period. Um, and this is only in the hospitals that implemented Program 3, or Tier 3, the most robust antimicrobial stewardship measures, while, pro while hospitals that had Program Level 2 and 1 did not see a change in the antimicrobial or antibiotic prescribing. We also find that broad-spectrum antibiotic use did decline by 24% in Program 3, while there really wasn't statistically significant decrease in Programs 1 and 2. Use of restricted antibiotics declined by 86% in program three compared to 52% um, in program two and followed by 41% in program one, which program two and one were not statistically significant. So the only program that really had a statistically significant impact was program three, which had an 86% decrease um, in use of these restricted, often broad spectrum antibiotics. And as um, this, the study authors also concluded that, um, which is important because when we restrict antibiotics, we want to make sure that in using antimicrobial stewardship services that we're not adversely affecting patient outcome. And the study did look at patient outcome. They found no statistically significant difference in patient mortality, 30-day readmission rate, um, and hospital length of stay with any of the three programs which shows that we did see a benefit in decreasing antimicrobial or antibiotic use um, how, and more stringent use, more appropriate use, while, not neg while preventing any negative um, outcomes that would have been due to stewardship program itself. The clostridium difficile rates for program one, which is again the most um, lenient or smallest program, um, encountered a 0.47 cases per 1,000 days. Um, from point, I'm sorry, from 0.47 to 0.73, so little increase in rate of C. diff. The rates in um, for program two went from 0.93, actually decreased a little to 0.82, and then finally in program three we saw a decline to 0.36 cases per thousand patient days, which is a significant increase. And for those of you who are wondering, well, to have uh, infectious disease staffed um, hotline, how much time work um, would this take? Well, they recorded every type of call that came into the hotline 
and they recorded a total of 1,006 calls um, over a 15-month period of time. Most of the calls, over 80%, were during normal business hours. And um, the interesting thing that I find is um, of the calls that came in, um, that was 5 to 15 minutes accounted for 50% of the calls. The other 50% were actually less than 5 minutes, so are usually very quick curbside calls. So in this study, I think it, they really did a good job in showing the impact of antimicrobial stewardship program, but not just a basic program, but a more advanced program and the benefit of increasing type of interventions that may be provided in an antimicrobial stewardship program and how it is justified that it will improve patient outcome without um, increasing the risk of patient harm or injury. Again, this study was published in Clinical Infectious Disease um, Journal and in the August um, edition. The last study we're going to talk about was published in JAMDA um, in August. This is a head of print, so it's available online. And it's titled Antimicrobial Stewardship in Long-Term Care Facilities, um, Approaches to Creating an Antibiogram When Few Bacterial Isolates Are Cultured Annually. And again, this study has multiple authors um, with... Um, the first author as Dr. Tolik, um, an, an infectious disease pharmacist, and including Dr. Carrie LaPlante, another infectious disease um, pharmacist. So the issue here that the authors are trying to address was what do we do when our antibiogram, which should have 30 isolates for every drug-bug combination, cannot be done because we do not have 30 culture susceptibility results for each organism drug combination. What are ways around this? How can we still create an antibiogram without um, just recording low level of isolates, which would mean that there's a high chance that this does not reflect our patient population. And as the authors, um, I think, did a great job in defining what an antibiogram is, it summarizes a healthcare facility's bacteria susceptibilities to antibiotics, typically over a one-year period. And this displays um, which bacteria have the highest rate susceptibility to specific antibiotics in a given facility. And this does help guide clinicians, providers, and prescribers on which antibiotics should be prescribed for certain um, infectious disease-related indications. The Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute, or CLSI, does publish the guidelines for how to create an antibiogram. This um, guideline is often um, released about every two to three years, and the current one is the M39 version. And in this guideline, um, there isn't too much discussion or much discussion on what should be done when there is less than 30 isolates. And again, 30 being the magic number because that's where you reach statistical significance in that the susceptibility is reported truly reflect your patient population. And so CLSI, under guideline, their recommendation is that if you don't have 30 isolates for a given year, that you combine two or more years until you reach that limit of 30 isolates um, so that you have a statistically significant representation on your antibiogram. However, the problem really with this is that your bacterial susceptibility to certain antibiotics may change rapidly, um, often over a year, even less than a year, to where if you're reporting data from two or three years, um, the data would be skewed because it may have been, organisms may have been very susceptible to certain antibiotic two years ago, 
um, the previous year may be a less susceptible, and then um, your late last group of data showing that they're very resistant. So overall, your antibiogram will show that they're moderately resistant because it's more of an average rather than showing what the current um, resistance patterns are. So the authors reviewed different approaches that were published um, uh, both online and in print, looking for ways to address this issue of not having enough isolates to reach that 30 um, isolate per organism uh, threshold that's needed to be statistically significant. The first approach they found in the literature was, again, to extend the antibiogram data beyond the year, what I just mentioned, and that's what's recommended by clinical laboratories and standards institute. However, resistant rates and patterns of bacteria can change over a year, and this can skew the results. The second approach was creating a regional antibiogram. And this is um, also promoted by Clinical Laboratory St Standards Institute. And this is where you combine data from several facilities in the same geographic region. And the idea here is if one facility doesn't have enough isolates, perhaps two or three together may have um, enough isolates that meet that 30 isolate requirement. Um, however, the drawback really with this is that one facility may not have necessarily the same patient population as another facility, thus skewing the results um, for um, each given facility. Approach three was using antibiograms nearby hospitals, and this is where nursing homes can use antibiograms um, released or published by larger hospitals in the area. Uh, most hospitals are able to reach this 30 isolate per organism and antibiotic threshold because they often run um, hundreds, sometimes even thousands of culture susceptibility tests per year. Um, one disadvantage of this method is that the culture susceptibility results shown in the antibiogram would reflect acute care patients, patients going to a hospital, rather than patients who actually um, reside in a nursing home or long-term care facility. And as um, we know, patients in long-term care facilities often have more resistant um, hard treat organisms than patients who are in the community who present to a hospital. The fourth approach they propose um, and found reported in the literature is called a collapsed antibiogram. And this is grouping similar organisms together. Um, the example the authors use here is um, using organisms that are typically found in urine or skin um, or in sputum cultures and lumping them all together and so you report, your report will show instead of an organism antibiotic susceptibility rate, it will show that, well, out of all the UTIs we had, antibiotic A was 86% susceptible, while antibiotic B was maybe 50% susceptible. So that would push the clinician to use antibiotic A. So your, your really your antibiogram will show drug and then indication rather than organism. This is um, a feasible thing and often does help reach that third, help us reach that 30 isolate um, or 30 um, isolates for statistical significance. However, one limitation here is you're not looking specifically at what organisms um, susceptibilities are to specific antibiotics. You're more looking at what antibiotics are effective for a given indication. And again, this study, which um, was published in JAMA, it's published this month and it's ahead of print. Um, titled Antimicrobial Stewardship in Long-Term Care Facility, Approaches to Crane Antibiogram, when few bacterial isolates look cultured annually, um, is an interesting read and one that perhaps will help some facilities create a more meaningful antibiogram. So with those three studies, we reach a conclusion of our podcast. 
And we hope you continue to listen. And if you um, enjoy this podcast and future episodes, please like us. Um, our podcasts can be found on the iTunes store and also available online at smedconsult.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great time and look forward to sharing more interesting and useful studies in the upcoming months.